my iPad. But anyway, it's great to be here. Uh, my wife, I have my wife Tammy stand up. Uh, she always makes me look better. We've been here uh, in Dallas this weekend, um, facilitating and leading the marriage retreat here uh, with all the marriage in the church. And so I uh, had a chance to teach two classes uh, yesterday and to preach this morning. So this is my fourth lesson. Uh, so I'm going to need I'm going to need your energy and your inspiration. What I was told is that I, I spent uh, the last two days with the marriage, but tonight I'm supposed to be spending time with the best part of the DFW Church. And so, uh, all right. Go ahead, look in your Bibles in uh, Mark chapter 15. And uh, I want to encourage you and inspire you uh, here this evening. How many of you guys uh, and girls and young men and young women have seen the movie Hidden Figures? Oh, my gosh. Don't you want to go to heaven? Have you, I mean, this is the most incredible movie I've seen in, uh, in many, many years. And uh, let me just share a little bit about the movie without giving it away. I want to encourage you to go see Hidden Figures. In 1962, John Glenn was the first American to orbit the Earth. We were trying to beat the Russians to do it. And so Hidden Figures is about these really a group of African-American women who were known as human computers, but the story is about three women in particular, but really one, her name is Katherine Johnson. She is still living today. She's 98 years old. Uh, she went to high school at the age of 10. She graduated at the age of 14. Then she went to college and graduated at 18, and then she goes to work for NASA. And this is before we have computers like we do today, and they actually used to call human beings computers. And so she was a human computer, and what she did was she actually sat in a room, long hours, working every day, doing all the mathematical problems and calculations for the orbit to see if the spaceship went up, if it could, in fact, get into orbit and come back. And the math there was so complicated that they had a room full of people plugging out numbers, and when John Glenn went to do it, he said, find the woman who does the calculations by hand and have her do it. If she was off by just a little bit of a decimal, he would have been stuck in outer space. And so I, I look at this movie about these women, and it's called Hidden Figures, is because I don't know that story. And these women are people that are hidden in history. And you would never know that they play such a pivotal role in what NASA's been able to do and our space program. Now, you're here, we're here, spiritual people, disciples of Jesus. You guys are familiar with uh, Moses, right? And Noah, Saul, David, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jonah, Habakkuk, probably not. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James, Rick, James. I mean, you, you, you probably, you're probably familiar with all of those people. And so ever since I saw that movie, it's, it's been my goal to go back and search the Bible. If I could find some people that are tucked away in the scriptures that are so significant, maybe we just look over them and don't know who they are. And so one of those characters I want to show, share with you here uh, this evening, and it's found in Mark chapter 15. In verse 21 is also found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, 
in Luke chapter 23, verse 26, this guy does not get an entire book. His name is Simon of Cyrene. There is no book of Simon. He doesn't even get a chapter. He gets one verse. And I'm going to read Mark's version because it happens to be the longest version and gives the most details of Simon and Cyrene. It's 30 words. This guy gets 30 words, but he plays such a significant role in the gospel and in our lives. And I think we can learn a lot from Simon here this evening. In verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, The other Gospels don't say Alexander and Rufus. They leave the names out. Was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. That's it. That's all you get. Simon of Cyrene is a guy. They tell you his name is Simon. They tell you where he's from. He's from Cyrene. Cyrene is the northeast part of modern-day Libya. It's about 900 miles from Libya to Jerusalem. And so we know his name, we know where he's from, we know he's a father of two sons, and we know that he was making his way into Jerusalem, and we know that he was forced to carry the cross of Jesus, and that's all we know. But I want you to understand that this guy's amazing. I want you to picture what it must have been like for Simon to grow up, there were a lot of Jews that lived in Cyrene, and so he grew up hearing about the Passover and the temple and the chief priests and the elders and the Messiah coming back. He grew up hearing all these stories about how Nehemiah went back and rebuilt Jerusalem and the walls and Ezra read the scripture to the people and they fasted and prayed and repented. He read about the prophecies of Isaiah. He knew all these stories. And let's just say getting to Jerusalem was on his bucket list. Ever since he was a little boy, he had dreamed to do what all the other Jews who had been doing, living in Jerusalem. They had the chance to go to Jerusalem all the time because they were in close proximity. So annually they would go. And historians think about 100,000 people, that's a lot of people, would flood to Jerusalem for Passover every year. And this was the year that Simon could go. And so 900 miles, there's no planes, there's no trains, there's no automobiles. And so he's walking hitchhiking, chariots maybe. He's trying to make his way 900 miles. Takes about 30 days. He sat at home in Cyrene and he planned his trip. There's no GPS. He's planning his trip. He's trying to figure out how he's going to eat along the way. Where is he going to stay along the way? He had been anticipating this day his entire life. And he sets off from Cyrene, and he starts going toward Jerusalem. And he's making his way there. He goes, oh, my God, I've heard about the Passover meal, and I finally get to take it. I get to take the Passover in Jerusalem. And not only I get to go there, and I get to see the new temple. The greatest building on earth is Herod's temple, and I get to see it. And I get to be a part of it. And I get to see what the chief priests look like. I get to see the court of the Gentiles and what it must be like to envision the the holy of holies and the most holy of holies inside this temple. And he's thinking about that along the way. He's motivated to make that trip 900 miles for a Jew back then was also very risky because you had raiders on the road that would rob you. So he might try to find some other people that he could travel with and he might want to make sure that he didn't travel at night and he didn't go down certain roads. And he's trying to figure out how to get there. And so finally, 
He starts to come into Jerusalem. I had a chance to go to Jerusalem 10 years ago. It's amazing. From the Mount of Olives, you can stand there and see where Jesus prayed over Jerusalem. You got the Kidron Valley at the very bottom. You walk down, you go through the Garden of Gethsemane. I went down, I prayed. Then across the street is the wall that goes around the city that was rebuilt. You make your way around. You go into the holy place at the very bottom. The Jews are there at the wailing wall, and there today they're praying. It's amazing to be able to see this. So you can imagine, Simon of Serene, he gets there in the distance, and he begins to see the city glow because the, 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 uh, the sand and the glass and the gold is there, and it's shining. He goes, I'm finally here. Now, he knew it was going to be packed. He knew there was 100,000 people there. There's chaos everywhere, but it's normally fun and excitement, like people showing up for the Olympics. And he starts to walk into the city walls, and he hears the people, but it's, it's not the kind of fun and the, not the noise that you would expect. There's chaos, and there are mobs of people. There are angry people that are shouting, kill him, kill him, kill him. Crucify him, crucify him. You see people running around, women are crying, bystanders are pushing people out, and he doesn't really understand what he's like. I don't think this is not what I was looking for. I've been waiting my entire life, and he's he's getting closer to the city, and all of a sudden he says, Something is wrong. And then it happened. He wasn't ready for it. Some Roman soldier walks up to him and grabs him and says, Hey, and pulls him out. The Roman soldiers dressed up, sword by side, shield, strong, big, the security force. They own Palestine and all of Israel. All the Jews are under Roman occupation. He knows that's the power. He submits and comes over, and they say, I need you to pick up that cross and carry it. There's no evidence he knew that that was Jesus under the cross. And so he's thinking to himself, There's a little bit of fear, and there's a little bit of anger. He's afraid that if I don't pick up that cross, they're going to kill me. He's angry because he's thinking these Roman, the power structure, the the, the people, always putting us down. I heard about this. He's angry because he's also thinking, oh, my God, if I touch that cross, I will be labeled unclean. And I can't take the Passover. I've traveled 900 miles for one month, avoiding all kind of risk, saving money, planning. And all of a sudden, I get here. And this guy's going to force me to carry the cross to some man I don't know, some stranger. It's going to make me unclean. He's upset. When I read about Simon of Cyrene, I think about sometimes we're searching for the cross, and sometimes the cross finds us. Here's a couple of things that we learn about Simon of Serene. Number one, we we learn Simon teaches what it means for Jesus to cross our path. In Mark chapter 15, it says that he was, there's only a few words here, was passing by on his way from the country. Jesus was being led to Calvary, Golgotha, to be crucified. He was from the inner city. He had walked through downtown Jerusalem. I have walked this path. I have walked the Via Della Rosa. I have gone up to, I physically have done it. I've walked up it. I've gone to Calvary. 
I reached down inside the huge building and reached in the floor and touched the rock. I've gone out to the tombs by Golgotha where they rolled away the stone and crucified him. I've been there. So he made his way. Jesus is actually making his way kind of out of the city. And here Simon is coming into the city. And isn't that what discipleship and Christianity is all about? We're going one way and Jesus is going the other. And he, we cross paths with Jesus. And, and he wasn't ready to carry the cross. And, and when I'm saying carry the cross, for phys- him physically. But for us, we know that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 14 that if you want to come follow me, you got to do what? you got to carry your cross. How often? Every day. And do we willingly do it or does somebody have to force us to do it? And so he comes, he crosses, he intersects. He didn't know this was going to happen. I don't think he fully understood that was Jesus. And he didn't want to do it. And he picked it up. He swallowed his pride. And he put that cross on his back. And he didn't want to do it. But I have to imagine that as he began to carry that cross and feel the weight of it, he started looking at the person who was under it. He goes, wow. I wonder what he did. It's a bloody mess. And then he sees Jesus, who's beat up, just in bad shape, can't carry the cross anymore himself, taking one step at a time. And he's thinking, man, look at that perseverance. Look at that tenacity. Who is this dude? Why just drop dead down? They're gonna, why is he walking to death? I was him, I just stop, and Jesus keeps walking. And as he keeps walking, Simon keeps walking. And I think I have to believe that at some point in time of carrying that cross, there was a heavy burden. At some point, maybe he had a conversation. What did you do? Why are they killing you? And Jesus keeps walking. Why don't you say anything? And Jesus keeps walking. And maybe by the time they got to Calvary and they put the cross up and began to nail Jesus to it, the guy sat there and saw Jesus being nailed to the cross and then seeing the cross lifted up. Maybe he felt some guilt. Man, I, I helped put him here. And maybe he stood, I don't know if he stood at the foot of the cross and just looked up and, man, I'm a part of this. I hear people in the audience saying he's innocent. Hollis White just said, look, don't have anything to do with him. I don't know what happened to Simon and what changed. I know that when he first picked up that cross, he didn't want to do it. But somehow, Jesus had changed him. You know, um, I stand here today in Dallas. Because sometime back in the summer of 1993, I crossed paths with Jesus. I was in Atlanta, Georgia. I was at Windy Hill and Cobb Parkway. I used to sell pharmaceuticals at Smithline Beach. I was a pharmaceutical rep before I was in the ministry. And I was working on a presentation that if I did very well, I would get this promotion. The kind of promotion that takes you from really good income to like awesome income. I already had a great job, I had an expense account, I had a company car, I had great salary, I had great benefits, I, but this promotion was going to take me to the next level. I had just had to do a presentation. 
So I go into a FedEx Kinko's and I'm getting my stuff ready for the presentation. I had no idea. I'm thinking I'm on the road of money. I'm on the road of promotion. And I walk out of that Kinko's and a guy named Chris Dunn intersected me. He says, hey, excuse me for a second. I want to invite you to a Bible study at my house. And I go, well, when is it? He goes, it's Friday. And I said, oh, shoot, I wish I could make it. I couldn't make it because my wife and I had just started a Bible study in our own apartment. Prior to him meeting me, I had been reading the Bible every day for two years, and Tam and I decided that the church we were going to was racially messed up. And so we didn't go there no more, and we were going to do Jesus in our apartment. And I remember I went out, invited people to my apartment. This is how zealous and naive I was. I I said, come to my house on Friday night for a Bible study. Then all of a sudden, Friday night gets there, people start showing up. And I said, Tam, what do people want? She says, you invite them to a Bible study. I said, oh, shoot, where's my Bible? And so I had to get something ready. So I realized I didn't know what I was doing. And then this is on a Wednesday. The brother comes up to me, says, come to my Bible study. It's going to be at my house on Friday. And I said, I can't come because I got my own Bible study at my house on Friday. And then I said, by the way, what are you doing at your Bible study? He says, come see. And I went to the Bible study. I still remember what it was. It was about greatness. He says, who's the greatest boxer? Muhammad Ali. Who's the greatest basketball player? Michael Jordan. He says, what does it mean to be great? Jesus says, to be great, you got to be the servant. How many of you guys want to be great? People raise their hand. He said, I want to be great. How many of you guys want to help me be great? Everybody raise their hand. We want to help you be great, Chris. He says, great. Time out. Be right back. He left the room, came back dressed up like a servant, had a big basin of water. He said, everybody that raised their hand, he said, they want me to be great. I need you to sit down and take off your shoes and socks so I can wash your feet. That was my first Bible talk. And I said to myself, his Bible study is better than my Bible study. I I was going to read the table of contents. So I started studying the Bible. Got baptized December 1st, 1993. Tammy got baptized December 8th, 1993. Eleven months later, the church came to us and said, hey, we want you to go into full-time ministry. I know some people dream to go into ministry. I didn't. I didn't dream about going to ministry. I didn't want to go into ministry. I like my. I love my job. I loved it. I was. It was. I didn't want to change nothing. I had no desire to do it. I even told one of the ministers. I said, "Look, if you like me, don't ever ask me to go into ministry. <laughs> don't ever ask. It. You'll be disappointed. That's not. That's not my goal. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go into ministry." And they asked me to go into ministry. And Tammy and I prayed about it. Called my parents. My dad's like ministry? Why'd you go to West Point if you're going to be in the ministry? You could have done something else. That's a waste of this. Whatever. <laughs> Why are you doing that with your life? Your wife is pregnant. You got a baby coming. Do they pay? They don't take care of people. You know, all kind of stuff. And Tam and I prayed about it. I remember we thought, okay, let's just do this and we'll just see for a year if this is what God wants us to do. And so we went into the ministry. But right before that, that promotion came up. And the promotion was going to move me from Atlanta to North Carolina. And I remember sitting down and talking about, was that a good spiritual move? I did the interview, interview, got the job. They announced it to the company. And then I came back to the company and said, I'm staying in Atlanta. And then the regional vice president came to me and says, you, you know, the company really has blackballed you because you really embarrassed them by taking the job 
they interview people. Now they got to go out and interview somebody else, and you didn't take the job. I said, well, look, I apologize. I got, I got to stay here for spirit, you know, spiritual reasons. I really can't move right now. Uh, but I had somebody who was my advocate, so they didn't fire me. And I kept working. And then when Steve Sapp asked us to go into the ministry and we decided to do so, I remember I wrote a resignation letter and I called my boss. I work from home. I called my boss and I said, I need to meet with you. I need to talk to you about something. And I was going to resign and go into ministry. He says, oh, I was going to talk to you about something as well, Ben. I'm glad you called. Why don't we just meet? So we was in a Ruby Tuesday and we sit down. <laughs> I remember all the details. <laughs> and I sit down with my boss. His name was John. And John says, okay, who want to go first? I said, well, you're the manager, you know, you go ahead and go first. He said, well, no, you, you called me first, wanted to talk to me. I said, okay, well, John, I, here's the deal. And I handed him the resignation letter. And he looked at the letter, and he goes, wow, this changes everything. And he says, well, I guess we can't compete with God. And he put the resignation letter down. And I said, well, John, what is he going to talk to me about? He says, well, it, it doesn't really matter now. I said, no, I, I, I want to know. Literally, <laughs> what do you want to talk to me about? He says, you know that promotion that was in North Carolina and you didn't take, came down, he says, we decided the company, we really love you. So anyway, that position is there, is now in Atlanta, and is yours if you want it. <laughs> and even as I tell you that story today, I always ask, if he had gone first, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? <laughs> if, if, uh, you know, I wonder, is this... That, this is 22 years later, but I wonder if he had gone first and said the promotion, would I have been you next? I ain't got nothing. I'm good. <laughs> I, I was just playing. I was just playing. I, just, I ain't singing a long time. I, I like Ruby Tuesday. I want to get you lunch. I want to see a smile on your face. I want to say hi. But I'm not sure, you know, I would have handed him that resignation letter. And so fast forward years, I went back to seminary. I've gone to got the PhD in theology. I'm now back in another doctorate program. I get to lead a church. I'd have been to Africa multiple times. I'd have been to Israel. The ministry has taken me everywhere. I get to meet all kind of wonderful people because a guy named Chris Dunn in the summer of 1993 crossed my path and said, hey, will you come to a Bible study? Are you following me? And that was, the, that, that was the intersection. I was going in one direction, and Jesus going in another. And that is what repentance is. Repentance is not just stopping sin. Repentance is really a change of the trajectory of our lives. It is a shift. I was going to make money, and Jesus was going to make disciples. I was going to serve me, and Jesus was going to serve mankind. And when you meet Jesus, it doesn't matter really what you have dreamed about and planned for. And that's what lordship is all about. We encounter Jesus, and he said, I'm changing your dreams. I'm changing your passions. I'm changing the trajectory of your life, and you're going to have to trust me. It's going to be hard. You might be angry. You might not really want to do it at first. You might not want to pick up that cross. Somebody might force you to do it. But I'm telling you, if you pick it up, Jesus, you walk with me. I'm going to change your life. And 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you're going to look back. I look back on my life. I am still married. 
because I became a disciple of Jesus. Because if I hadn't become a disciple of Jesus, I would have been a horrible husband. And I would have been a horrible father. I'd be divorced and paying child support. If I had not intersected Jesus, are you following me? And I wouldn't be standing here tonight before you. So the one thing we learn is Simon teaches us what it means, really, to cross Jesus' path. Number two, and these are shorter. Simon teaches us to carry other people's burdens. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul writes, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Imagine that. By carrying each other's burdens. The Greek word here, burdens, is baros, and it means extremely heavy load. In other places in the New Testament, it is translated as tremendous pressure. I remember one time I was watching a weightlifter on TV squat like a thousand pounds, a big, huge dude. He's squatting. He put the weight on there. The, the weight, the bar was bending. And so he, he's shaking and he's going down. I mean, it just, it's just plate after plate after plate after plate. And he goes down. Oh, my God, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. As he starts to come up, he gets about right here and his knee just buckles out. This is nasty. Hold on. And the bone in the bottom of his leg, hold on now, the bone in the bottom of his leg just pops out the skin. And he falls, and because the weight is so heavy, people are like, they got to like take the weight off. And so he's screaming while his bone is sticking like that because it was too much weight for his bones. That's what a burden is. It's too much weight. You know what the thing that inspires me about Simon being forced to carry the cross of Jesus is I go, Jesus, that cross wasn't, how was it too heavy for him? He raised the dead. You know what I'm saying? He, he did. He raised the dead. People were dead, and he brought them back to life, and you tell me he can't carry the cross? He could have probably just put the cross on his finger and, it's like, and just strolled on it, you know. If he, so I look at it, I go, Man, even Jesus, Jesus in this moment is still teaching us that there are some things that are too heavy for us. There are some things we need help with. We are vulnerable people. And Jesus right here all beat up, he allowed them to beat him and whip him and flog him and stab him and put the crown of he allowed his flesh to be beaten and mutilated. He showed his vulnerability. And Jesus, I can't do it. He couldn't do it no more. Even the Romans recognized he can't do it. He can't carry it. He ain't going to make it. And Jesus is demonstrating this ultimate vulnerability that says there are some things that are too heavy for me. And if there are things that are too heavy for Jesus, there are things that are too heavy for us. And that's why Paul writes, we need to carry each other's burdens. Let me tell you another story. As, as a minister, I am, I, part of my role, I am a burden bearer. People in 22 years of ministry, there's nothing someone can confess and say to me I have not heard many times before. Nothing. You can't make up something. I have heard every sin, crime imaginable. People confess stuff to me, they ain't told nobody. 
They studied the Bible and pulled me aside later and go, I don't trust the people in them studies. <laughs> I had somebody today at the marriage retreat that came up to me and said, look, can I trust you? Can I talk to you about something? I don't trust a bunch of people. Is this something like, are you obligated by it? Yep, I have. I can't even say, I, I, trust me, I can't say nothing. You got the right to privacy with me. You can tell me anything. And so I don't like hearing everything, though. I feel like the, the guy on Green Mile, remember when he, he, he absorbed everything? He's like, <gasps> and sucked it in, and eventually he had to <coughs> cough it out. That's what I do. And a lot of times I, be, I carry people's emotional burdens because they can't trust a whole lot of other people. Years ago, we had a couple in our church. She was a disciple. She had four daughters, one in college, one in high school, one in middle school, and one in elementary school. She had a husband and never came to church. Never. I had never met him. They were 40 years old. And all of a sudden, right around Christmas, he gets the devastating news. He has stage four pancreatic cancer. They give him less than two weeks to live. So his wife calls me and says, I need you. He wants to see you. I ain't never met him. And I've been knowing her for years. He's never come to church, never talked to him. I go to the hospital room, and it's packed full of all his friends and family. And I'm trying to get into the room, and I'm looking, and he can see me. I can see somebody in the bed. I don't know what he looks like. I've never met him. All of a sudden, he says, quiet, quiet, everybody, stop. Here comes my pastor. <laughs> That's what he said. And I go, and it's like the, the Red Sea parted. And I, and I walked in, and I'm telling you, I didn't know what he looked like until I, found, I, I got to the bed. I said, hey, hey, what's up, man? Good to meet you. He says, okay, pastor. I got, I got some stuff I got to get off my chest. I got to get right before God. He starts crying and bawling. He sends everybody out the room. He goes, what do I need to do to get right? I've been so stupid. I didn't come to church. I need to repent. I know all. What, tell me right now. So we pull out the Bible. He says, I want to sit down. I, want, I need to confess this to my wife and to my children. I said, ah! I said, no, you're not. You are not going to put this burden on your wife and your children and then die? No, you're not going to do that. So I sat down with a chair right beside his bed. I said, now you can tell me. You want to get it off your chest? You tell me. But you are not going to confess this stuff to your wife. You should have done that a long time ago. You're not going to get this, your burdens, put your burden on her, and she got to live with that and bury you? No, not, that's not going to happen. So anyway, we studied the Bible, baptized him, and he died. Like seven days later. We're at the funeral, and the wife, the sister's trying to be strong. She got family. It's extremely sad. Four daughters, five beautiful women that are part of this. The husband, the father is in the casket, and the wife pulls me aside. She goes, come here for a minute, and I walked around the corner in the funeral home. She took me around the corner, and I, I stood there, and I said, yeah, what's up? And literally, she just fell, fell in my arms, and I remember standing there just holding her in my suit. All this was just wet with tears, like the tears were popping off. And then finally, I could feel her stand. She stood back up. She goes, okay, let's do this. And she walks. She, she had so much 
so much burdens. He had so much burdens. And they needed someone that could listen and care. We live in a world that we can be, the, I call it the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. And we're so consumed with what's going on in our lives that we're not prepared to carry the burdens of others. And Paul writes here in Galatians 2 that we should carry the burdens of others and thus fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. We learn that. Simon teaches us what it means to carry the burdens for others. And then lastly, Simon also teaches us the importance of making a lifetime impact of what I would call a legacy. Mark is a gospel that's written to a primary Roman audience. And so Mark in this gospel, he's the only one, if you read Matthew and Luke, they say is Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry the cross. Mark is the only one that says the father of Rufus and his brother, I'm drawing a blank on his brother's name now, Alexander. The father of Rufus and Alexander. Then if you look at Paul's letter in Romans to the Roman group of people, Roman disciples, the last chapter there, chapter 16, is the chapter, I call it the shout-out chapter, where Paul is giving a shout-out to everybody. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so in the Lord. Greet the twins, greet Tramposa, greet the people who used to meet in their house. There's like 30 people he says greet. A third of those people he knew personally. But in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Theologians believe that this Rufus that Mark uh, writes about in chapter 15, and Paul writes about in Romans chapter 16, is the same Rufus. They believe that this is the guy, that Simon of Cyrene, this was his son, and that later on, this son and his mother, apparently there's several things if Rufus is the son, is that Rufus and his mother probably became disciples, and Simon of Cyrene by this time is more than likely dead, because he's not mentioned, and he would have been mentioned in the salutation, but he's not. And maybe Alexander is dead as well or off somewhere else or never became a Christian. But the point is this. Greet Rufus. There's a reason why Mark mentions him. And I want you to imagine that you're Rufus and what your testimony would be like. What would your story be like? You're in the, in the Roman church. Paul thinks it's worthy enough to say, greet Rufus and his mom. He lifts them up publicly in the writing. And everybody in the church knew Rufus because they knew his dad, Simon. They knew Simon of Serene. And can you imagine they would come up, people would meet him in church. Who's that brother right there leading the small group? That's Rufus. The Rufus? <laughs> the Rufus of Cyrene? That Rufus? Yeah, that, that's Rufus. The one whose father carried the cross? Yeah, that, that's him. And they would go up and say, hey, Rufus, man, what was, what was it like for Simon being your dad? And Rufus said, man, my dad is my hero. You know, he always tells this story, my dad, that he didn't really want to carry that cross. And he felt like Jesus had, had spoiled his life. He felt like, you know, he had lived all this time and wanted to go to do the, you know, to be the, he, he wanted to do the Passover. He didn't get a chance to do it. It, but, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. He never got to do the Passover, but 
he didn't care because he actually met the Passover lamb. And he said, I tell you, that day changed his life. He didn't want to do it. But you know what? When he picked up the cross and he started walking with it and he felt the weight of it and he, he kept his eyes on Jesus, he realized that he had participated in the death burial of Jesus and he was sad and guilty. But he used to always tell us this story. And he would say it like this. My dad would come in there and pull us around the table and say, I didn't want to do it. And I carried the cross. And I felt so guilty for putting him on the cross. But three days later, guess what happened? He rose. And I decided not to leave Jerusalem. And I stayed there. And all the commotion, because people kept talking about He was talking about coming back from the dead. And so I felt so bad to put him on the cross. I wanted to see if it was true. And guess what? It was true. And he came back to life. And then maybe Simon went up to Jesus and met him and said, oh, my God, this is a different circumstance. I'm, you, you, I can't believe you're alive. I'm sorry for, for having to do that cross. And Jesus says, no, you just, you carried the cross. I tell you what, you carried me to the cross, but now I want you to carry the cross. And so Simon says, I'll do it. I will literally carry the cross for you the rest of my life. And I bet you he went back home to his wife and Alexander and Rufus, and he said, hey, honey, sons, come here. Guess what daddy did? You know, I went to Jerusalem for the Passover, right? You are not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. And he tells the story, and it's his story. And I could imagine what everybody probably thought of Rufus, and they looked and said, man, that's why Rufus is who he is today. There are some of you in here, you can say that about your mom and dad. Some of you are here because you have parents who intersected with Jesus at some point in time and made some decisions and choices that you can't even begin to fathom and be aware of. You need to go home and thank them for picking up their cross and following Jesus. But more importantly, if you hear, and this is the point I really want to get across, what impact are you going to leave? What future Rufus's Will there be because God has crossed your path? Who down the line will be able to say, you know what? That brother, that sister, my mom, that dad, my minister, my evangelist, my small group leader, my campus ministry, my youth and family man. You, you won't believe what it was like and what they did, the sacrifice they made, where they went, what they gave up, how they loved, how they served for me to be here. And that's what's so important. You know, right now, we're going to take communion together. And this is our opportunity to enjoy and come to the table fellowship, to take the Passover meal together, the thing that Simon of Cyrene longed for as he made his way to Jerusalem. And I want, as we take the bread that represents the body of Jesus and the juice that represents his blood that was shed, I want us to think about this little hidden figure, Simon of Cyrene, no chapter, no book, one verse, 30 words. It said he was forced to carry the cross. Let us think about how we are willing and, and eager to keep carrying the cross of Jesus. Amen? Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for so many